You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Matthew chapter 14, the second in our Among Us series. And our heading today is Jesus' heart is open to us. Jesus' heart is open to us. As we break into this passage around the midway point in Matthew chapter 14, the writer reveals something incredible to us, something that enables us to look deep into Jesus' heart and to share in the raw emotion that touches him as he receives the devastating news about his beloved cousin, John the Baptist. Have a look with me at Matthew 14, verse 13, where we read, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What had Jesus heard that prompted him into isolation? Why was Jesus so keen to be alone? Well, it's outlined for us in the earlier verses in Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. Just even cast your eye down through those verses. Herod the Tetrarch had arrested John the Baptist. He had imprisoned him for speaking out against his immoral marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. And yet Herod was one of those spineless politicians. He hated what John the Baptist said, but knew how popular John the Baptist had become amongst the people. Imprisoning John seemed reasonable, but killing him was out of the question. Herod's ratings in the opinion polls would plummet if he carried out a stunt like that. And yet on a night of drunken abandon, he made rash promises to his stepdaughter Salome because her erotic dancing had pleased the crowd of men so much that she asked for the execution of John the Baptist. This was John the Baptist, Jesus' full cousin, the one who had leapt in the womb when he had met with Mary, knowing that she was carrying Jesus. His dear Aunt Elizabeth's son, And here he is, killed in such a callous fashion. The cousin to whom he was closest, not just in terms of age, John being just a few months older, but the cousin who who understood Jesus. In modern terms, you would say, he got Jesus. He knew who he was. He understood what Jesus had come to do. And as he grew up, you see, Jesus' brothers didn't understand Jesus. Jesus' brothers were embarrassed by him whereas cousin John seemed to know all about him. He had a spiritual bond as well as being a family friend. This was John, John who had prepared the way for Jesus. This was John who had the privilege of drawing the crowds and challenging them over their sin, the need of repentance and faith, turning from the religious routines and seeking after God. This was the John who baptized Jesus, the John who felt so unworthy in the presence of Jesus. A cousin by birth, a family member by faith, a preacher on the same page, an ally who understood. And of course, when we pile all that together, first of all, this morning we see Jesus' natural reaction in verse 13 is to seek solitude, to hide away for a while, because the death of this loved one hit Jesus' heart. And this wasn't just any death. This was his cousin, 
to whom he was closest, brutally beheaded. To lose John was one thing. To have him executed, well, that was quite another. And Jesus felt the need to be alone for privacy. And Matthew repeats this in three ways, just in one verse. Look at verse 13. Jesus withdrew privately to a solitary place. It's as if he's got his highlighter pen out as well as another pen underlining it for us all to see. He withdrew privately to a solitary place. Jesus wanted away from the crowds, all alone with his thoughts and his fears and his tears and his Father in heaven. For maybe, just maybe, I think there was a dawning reality in Jesus' life, what was in store for him. That what had happened to John would soon happen to him. And the ever-lengthening, fearful shadow of the brutal cross was falling across Jesus' life as the loss of this loved one hits Jesus hard, just as it would hit us. And the thought of having his own life taken in such a brutal way, well, that drove deep into his soul. Here we see Jesus like us, among us, in human flesh, with human feelings, bonds of affection, ties of family and friendship, needs of time and space to grieve, to weep, to grapple with the horror of John's death and the reality of his own impending departure. Folks, don't you see it in one line, in what appears to be a throwaway line in the middle of Matthew's gospel, verse 13, Jesus is not a plastic one-dimensional saviour, Jesus is no robotic, mechanical Messiah. Jesus is no heartless man on a mission from heaven. Jesus Christ is God among us, sharing our humanity in its fullness, hurting in the pain of personal loss, concerned for his own pain in the future. Of course he came to deal primarily with our sin, but he came as one of us, and he knows what it is to grieve. He knows this natural reaction proves to us that he is one of us. Which means, when we read what we read last week, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, we are coming to one who doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk. One who doesn't require us to explain why we're hurting, but we come to one who has been hurt and grieved and feels the need to flee the crowds and the fuss and find a place to be alone. Oh, my friends, this morning, if you're hurting, Jesus knows. Many of us need that reminder today. Our Savior on the throne is God in human flesh, and he feels it with us. And so if you're in that place today, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. You don't need to explain or excuse if you're hurt or hurting. Come to me. Get alone with me. And I will give you rest. And as we move on from Jesus' grief and Jesus' natural reaction to John's death, can't we see then for us, painted in such vivid colors, even through his tears, secondly, Jesus' heart in action. We read in verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, 
Well, how would you finish that sentence if you'd only read the sentence before? If you'd only known about Jesus' personal grief, having lost John the Baptist from verse 3, how do you think that sentence should have finished? Well, in our minds, it should have read, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he told his disciples to send them away because this just wasn't a great time. Or when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he asked him to give him a bit of space and come back tomorrow because he wasn't in the mood for visitors. Jesus' closest cousin is cruelly killed. Jesus wants to be alone. But verse 14, Jesus lands on the shore and standing before him, having raced all their way round the lakeside, is yet another large crowd. And over these next few verses... We get all the proof that we need that Jesus isn't all talk. That the come to me, all you who are weak and burdened, and I will give you rest, is true. And so, they come. They take him at his word. He said, come, and they came. The sick, the weary, the tired, the burnt out, the bothered, the bewildered people, they all come to the grief-stricken Jesus. And he does what he promised to do. He welcomes them. He said, come, and they came. He wanted to be alone, but his compassion was such for the crowds, was so much greater than concern for his own comfort. For our Lord Jesus cannot act in any other way. Jesus' life proves his heart. He might be broken and grieving, but he is here for others. He is open and he is receiving. What he is, he does. What he says is true. And it's not the only time in the Gospels that Jesus' heart is exposed by his gracious actions, is it? Let me just give you a handful of others. Matthew chapter 8, a few chapters before, verses 2 and 3. When the man suffering from leprosy says, Lord, three words that make a difference here, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus immediately stretches out his hand and touches him with these words, I will be clean. And the word will in both the leper's request and in Jesus' answer is the Greek word for desire. The leper is asking about Jesus' deepest desire. Is your deepest desire, Jesus, that I would be clean? And Jesus' reply says, it is my deepest desire. Be clean. One chapter on, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus travels from town to town. He sees the crowds. He has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he teaches them. He heals their diseases. And simply by seeing their helplessness, Jesus' pity is ignited. One chapter on from the chapter we're looking at today. Matthew 15, interestingly, in the feeding of the 4,000 Jesus sees this group of people who had been with him for three days listening to his teaching, and we read, I have compassion for these people. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus walks into the town of Nain as a funeral cortege is driving past, and standing before him is the woman who is about to bury her only son. And we read, when the Lord, Lord saw her cry, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. But he didn't just say, don't cry. He said, don't cry, and then he did something about it. And again, different context, but same meaning. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, the parable that's been called the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus tells in response to Peter's question about how many times you should forgive someone. 
And when the man who was owed 10,000 bags of gold was unable to be paid by the servant who falls on his knees and begs for mercy, he asked, is it your desire that you show mercy to me in order to save my wife and my family? We read in Matthew 18, verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled his debt, and let him go. Now, the Greek phrase in all of those verses that I have read, in every verse that I have read, the Greek phrase for compassion, or his heart went out, or took pity on him, isn't that incredibly gut-wrenching old term in some of our older translations, bowels of compassion. Now, it's not that we need to be reaching for the emodium here. It's an archaic phrase, and it's actually a beautiful phrase. And whilst that conjures up all sorts of other images for us today, it captures the bodily churning connected in the inners of Jesus that makes the emotional connection with people who are suffering. Jesus is physically, emotionally, spiritually stirred up from the very depths of who he is by the plight of human suffering. So when he sees humanity that he has created facing that grief or that pain in hunger or lost or out of control or stricken by disease or confused or caught in sin with a debt we cannot pay, Jesus' heart goes out to that person. And when we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what is it that most strongly stands out? It is the way the Son of God moves towards and touches and heals and embraces and forgives those who least deserve it. Yet, he gives it to those who truly desire it. Are you wanting to be fed inner feeding? You go to Jesus. If you're wanting to be forgiven, you desire it, come to Jesus. Jesus is willing to forgive, but we must come to him in repentance, pleading for his mercy. He has said, come, and we must go to him. Jesus is willing to strengthen us in our weakness if only we set aside our pride and ask him for his intervention. The Jesus we read about is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. The one who is full of merciful affections that stream out from his innermost being. Time and again, it is the most morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving, who do not simply receive Jesus' mercy, but to whom Jesus gravitates most naturally because he sees their plight. Remember the setting where this incredibly miraculous love was shown at the very moment that Jesus wanted to be alone. That's Jesus' heart in action, friends. The same heart that takes him to the cross, that stares deep into the cup of God's wrathful punishment in the Garden of Gethsemane, and is, he's churned up from within that night, sweating great drops of blood, but getting up and going with the soldiers to the courtroom, humiliated by the crowd and then crucified at that cross because Jesus cares more for his people 
than he does for his own pain. Did you hear that? Jesus cares more for his own people than he does for his own pain. And even at the cross, his heart goes out to his mother, Mary, and makes arrangements for Mary that she has looked after. And he comforts her as he is crucified at Golgotha. It's with the nails in his hands and feet that Jesus promises the dying thief that he will receive paradise as Jesus at that moment is receiving hell. It's in his excruciating agony he forgives those who crucified him and prays for those who caused his pain. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' heart in action. Jesus is physically, emotionally, spiritually stirred up from the very depths by the plight of human suffering, caring more for our sin and grief than for his own pain. And as we survey this scene in Matthew 14 that's played out amongst, well, it says a crowd of 5,000 men, but we reckon it was probably double that if you add the women and children besides, at least 10,000 people here. I know in this day and age when the message has been stay at home, we can barely remember what it's like to be amongst a crowd. But what we need to appreciate as we come towards the end this morning is how Jesus feeds the need. How Jesus feeds the need. For the feeding of over 5,000 is the, not the only parable recorded in all four Gospels, and it carries such weight and significance right the way through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus has been preaching and healing all day. He's given himself relentlessly to the crowd, but the evening is drawing in. The disciples are showing to know how they're going to look after all these people. The only food that they could source are five loaves and a couple of fish. They'd taken stock of the situation. It was tea time. It was a remote place. There was a hungry crowd. And now they felt under pressure. Well, we all know what we can be like on an empty stomach. Or is that just me speaking? But tempers fray. And in a big crowd, things are said and taken the wrong way. It could all very easily have got out of hand. And they were struggling to find a solution. But look at verses 17 to 19. The disciples said, We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he told the people to sit down in the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples then gave them to the people. Jesus takes these utterly pitiful resources that they have to hand and he multiplies it over and over again. And listen, there was no trickery or deception going on. I mean, you'd find it very hard to convince 10 people that they were well-fed and share the same story of the loaves of the fish, never mind 10,000 people. What was, the, was manifestly impossible has now become a reality. Jesus feeds the needy. Jesus supplies supper to the hungry. Jesus fills the stomachs of a crowd of 10,000 people from just a handful of loaves and fish. And in this moment, Jesus is making a statement about who he is and what he came to do. He has called into being what didn't exist before. He is creating a meal for the hungry that just wasn't there before. He is creating a way where there was none. For this was a Lord's Supper. This was a supernatural meal meeting the needs of lots of hungry, empty, needy people. 
And folks, that's what our Lord Jesus can do for you even today. In your nothingness, in your frailness, in your sin, he can bring something from nothing. That's what he's been doing since before time began. When he then created this world, he brought something from nothing. That's what he did as he came out of the tomb. He brought something from nothing. That's what he does on the mountainside here by the seashore. He brings something from nothing. And he can do the same with you if you feel like nothing. He can make you something. You see how it all started? Jesus wanted to be alone. But Jesus immediately saw the crowd and had compassion. His heart went out to them. Jesus provides crowds of people with bread of heaven. Jesus fills the hungry. Yes, from within, Jesus' heart goes to those who are around him. He wants to give them what they didn't have and produce for them what only he could provide. It's an echo of Exodus, isn't it? Where David will take us tonight in our big Bible overview. The manna from heaven, a feeding from above in the wilderness far away from the market stalls and the shops and the farms and the traders and their homes and their cooking pots God provides I hope you hear that today I hope you feel that today. I hope you know that today for many of us feel like we're walking through wilderness times in our lives right now some of us feel like we've been there for months feeling far from those things that normally fill our lives but where have we gone looking to be filled in these months? From filling our time out shopping across the province to maybe filling our time online shopping at every opportunity. Filling our time working harder at home or around the farm or the garden. Filling our time with more TV, box sets, binge watching, sports, sky cinema. Filling our time watching news and feeling under pressure and scared for ourselves and anxious for loved ones. All of us has filled our time over these last few months in some way. But I guarantee you aren't completely at ease or satisfied with that. Here's someone who can give you what you can't buy. Here's someone who can provide something that you don't send off for. Here's someone who can provide you with the bread of heaven that never goes moldy. Here's someone who can give you eternal food that will last. Here's someone whose body was broken for you. And we can eat and share of it as we go about our lives remembering him. This is someone who gives himself to you. But that's where I want to leave you today with the sight of the disciples counting 12 basketfuls of bread and fish left over. It only really struck me this week that that's more than they started with. That was enough for every disciple, wasn't it? In fact, symbolically, that was enough for every tribe of Israel, all 12 tribes. In other words, the totality of God's people. God provides entirely and more for his people. Because look at verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. You see, Jesus' provision that arises out of his pity satisfies and more. Incredible, isn't it? They had more left over than they had at the start. We stop and surmise that this was a miracle because we tend to think of miracles as interruptions in the natural order, you know, things that happen that we just didn't expect. But I want you to see something through a different lens today as we close. 
What Jesus is doing here is not interrupting the natural order, but Jesus is restoring the natural order. Jesus, whilst on earth, was pulling back the curtains on how things were meant to be and how things will be once again. The crowd surrounded him at this moment for three reasons. They came looking for healing for the sick, they came wanting to be fed, and they came eager to hear Jesus' teaching. And they all came away being with Jesus brought order. Being with Jesus brought peace. Being with Jesus was restoring and refreshing and providing. Because we are so used to a world full of illness and disease and pain and death and hunger. And we're always looking for things that will fill our lives in the interim that will satisfy us to dull that pain, to cover that time between now and our death. Always wanting to hear that new song, always wanting to buy that new piece of furniture, always wanting to update our wardrobe, always wanting to upgrade our phone, always wanting to improve our lives or build a bigger house or download that new series, make sure that we don't miss that match, hurry along to the doctor's appointment, that'll sort everything out, make things a little bit more bearable. That's what we spend our lives doing, trying to do things like that'll make life a wee bit more bearable. In fact, we spend so much of our lives trying to do things to make life easier and more enjoyable and that bit more bearable so we don't become bored or sick or short of money or care or uncomfortable. But when Jesus enters this world, he rehumanizes us. He shows us what fills us and truly satisfies us. That's why wherever he went, he confronted pain and death, but he also confronted sin and greed. These things are the unnatural things in God's world. Sin and sickness and dissatisfaction. Death and boredom. That is what sin has done in our world and is doing to us even now. But whenever Jesus heals someone who is sick, or whenever Jesus feeds 10,000 people with a few loaves and a couple of fish, the Lordship displayed restores creation to health. Jesus sorts it out. He heals, he fills, and he satisfies. Dean Ortland again from his book, Gentle and Lowly, concludes, wherever he went, wherever he was confronted by pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. If compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder. But as we finish, some of us might say, that was great when Jesus was here on earth, but he's not here now. So how can I cope? David, what should I do? My pain is very real. You just don't know my situation. But that's where we need to be reminded of the words that happen later on in the New Testament in Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, that's scripture. The same Jesus who reached out and touched lepers and feeds 10,000 people from next to nothing puts his arm around us when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. In other words, Christ's heart is not far off despite his presence in heaven, for he does all this by his Spirit. 
And here's the most incredible thing. Jesus walked among us in those days as God in human flesh. But if we are believers, trusting in the saving power of Jesus, in these days, God moves within us by his Spirit. The New Testament teaches us that we are united to Christ, a union so close, that unit is as close to us as our arms and legs are to our body. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers that he spoke to in Palestine 2,000 years ago, that he touched by his earthly ministry. By his Spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace that's tighter than any physical brace could achieve. His actions on earth in a body reflect his heart to us today. And that same heart is still moved with compassion and acts in the same way toward us. We've seen Jesus' natural reaction. We've seen Jesus' heart in action. Whether today you're a sufferer or guilty sinner, won't you come back to Jesus in whom alone you will find complete satisfaction? In fact, I'll go so far to say today, if you're dissatisfied with life at the moment, it's because you haven't come close enough to Jesus. For there is no social distancing with our Savior. Mm -hmm.